Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to Cryptique, where we discuss all things paranormal, occult, UFOs, metaphysical, hidden history, forbidden archaeology, and all things truth. I'm joined, as always, by a man who has no patience, but does dig him some Axel Rose. Right, what's up? That is accurate, actually. Yeah, listening to some Guns N' Roses yesterday. You know, they say that uh, Axl Rose has, like, the best range vocally of, like, anyone recorded in recent history. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah, I don't doubt it. It's so... I'll try to keep this tangent short. We used to have people like Seal. Your boy. Who could do these kind of incredible vocalizations. And now everything is auto-tuned. And there's going to be a point where it's like people won't even really connect like talent. Oh, yeah. Because I was listening to some of these shows that they'll do where it'll be like a live concert or a set of live concerts and they'll play it on Sirius. Because Kim and I go on road trips often enough that Sirius is like, it's worth it to have around. Mm -hmm. And we play it in the house and stuff like that. But it's like some of these live performances are terrible. Mm-hmm. Like I've heard high school performances that are better, significantly better than a lot of these, and it's yeah, it's just weird, weird that we're gonna get to a point where it's like your vocal range doesn't really matter, your actual talent doesn't really matter. It's like what the company behind you wants to manufacture you into. Yep, we're not gonna see another Amy Winehouse. We're not gonna see another Adele. People that. You know, I mean, Adele has lost a lot of weight and looks great and all that, but we're not going to see people that have talent that aren't beautiful also get a chance. Yeah, you're not going to see like a Freddie Mercury who's just a little offbeat, kind of. I mean, for his time, when you had women, like dudes dressed up like women singing about the devil. <laughs> He was he was not that far out there, but yeah, you you wouldn't have somebody like him today. Yeah, uh, it's it's going down a bad path, man, and it's gonna be fucking. People aren't gonna play guitars pretty soon. They're gonna play like rock band style guitars, where you know it makes it easier to do this or do that, and it's not gonna be an art. It's just gonna be an industry, you know. Yeah, I mean, we may eventually get to a point where there's a market like a separate market for human created like no (laughs) no auto-tune no algorithms no electronic instruments unless it's like something real basic Mm -hmm. anyway i'm excited because in february i'm gonna go see the eagles and steely dan's opening for them so i'm pretty i'm more excited about steely dan than the eagles if i'm honest (laughs) but all right well you want to tell them what they need to know yeah please like subscribe interact it helps us with the algorithms let us know what you want to hear and what your feedback is or what you want to hear us mispronounce actually if you have a good uh resource for pronunciation that would be really helpful you can email that info to cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com and you can see what we're selling at cryptiquepodcaststore.com and you can help us keep the servers on at buymeacoffee.com slash cryptiquepi not these coffees all right well what are we talking about tonight tonight we are talking about patience worth which is a pretty great name it is in 1913 a housewife named pearl curran gathered with her friend emily grant hutchings around a ouija board still mourning the loss of curran's father from the previous year hutchings hoped to establish a connection with the departed soul Although Curran had grown weary of the game, a compelling message... That's a red flag, by the way, to consider it a game. (laughs) Uh, There you go. Uh, A compelling message emerged during this particular session. Many moons ago I lived, again I come, patience worth my name. This seemingly ordinary moment marked the inception of a nationwide phenomenon that catapulted Curran into the realms of celebrity. Patience worth, the ghost who claimed to communicate through her identified as a Puritan who had emigrated to America in the late 1600s. Over the course of 1913 to 1937, 
Through Curran, channeled an astonishing four million words comprising six novels, two poetry collections, numerous plays, and volumes of witty repartee. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, it was a long time. To go time. through a Ouija board? That's a lot. Yeah, that's a long time, but still, it's like a full-time job. Yeah, I mean, it would be so tedious yeah. to sit and do letter by letter by letter. It would kind of suck, honestly. Yeah. Like, I might rather just not do it at all. <laughs> <laughs> The body of work garnered widespread attention, securing national headlines, critical acclaim, and even a movie deal. Boom. Patience Wirt's poetry found its place in prestigious anthologies like Braithwaite's alongside established writers such as Edna St. Vincent Millay. In 1918, so very soon into this whole process, she earned recognition mm-hmm. as an outstanding author by the Joint Committee of Literary Arts of New York. Notably, her novel, The Sorry Tale, achieved bestseller status with four printings. The New York Times lauded her poetry for its high level of literary quality and flashes of genius. Harper's Magazine praised the exceptional writings attributed to Patience Worth, while the New Republic affirmed her sensitivity, wit, keen metaphors and poetry, and vivid graphic storytelling and drama. Patience Worth emerged during the final flourishing of spiritualism in the United States, a period fueled by the rise of the Ouija board, the popularity of seances, and the genuine interest of notable figures such as Arthur Conan Doyle, William James, and Harry Houdini, who dedicated much of his later years to debunking mediums. Which, I don't know, I just like that. (laughs) I, I like when magicians are like, nah, this is bullshit. Yeah. Like, I know it's bullshit because this is what I do. Exactly. I'm not going to put up with anybody else's bullshit, but you can come and see my bullshit. Yeah, you can pay for my (laughs) bullshit. (laughs) Patience Worth's peculiar language, prolific output, and a fusion of transcendentalism and Christianity seemed paradoxical when attributed to Curran, a homemaker who had left school at the age of 13. The notion that such extraordinary poetry emanated from an ordinary woman, appeared so implausible to her contemporaries that many entertained the idea of a supernatural influence. Perhaps, they speculated, it was truly a ghost. According to Curran herself, life lacked excitement before the arrival of Patience Worth. In her youth, she aspired to be a singer, mainly as a means to elevate herself from what she described as a hopeless future. At the age of 24, she married John Curran, a man 12 years her senior, which... Is honestly not that big of a deal back then. Pretty right, normal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, residing in St. Louis with him and her stepdaughter, Kern's routine comprised household chores, social visits, naps, needlework, and playing music for the family. That's quite a life when naps can be listed as like part of your daily routine <laughs> and like your 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 job as a wife. Yeah, I mean, it would be great to be able to write novels through a Ouija board, but it would also be better to be like. You know, can you just vacuum for me? <laughs> can you just possess the vacuum cleaner and drive that around? <laughs> yeah, Kim and I just saw an ad for some new, I don't know, it's probably not new, but some sister wife show. Oh, God. I was like, that's what we need. We need some, like, we need to find a way to get a house cleaner. And this feels like an easy way to get one kind of for free. There you go. I knew some weird girls in high school who were like, I'm not interested in relationships, but my parents want me to get married someday. It's like you. We'll say that you're married. You clean the house. There you go. That sounds super weird, but it's one of these things where it's like, I can barely deal with Kim. Having people to help you with chores around the house is the only reason I can possibly think of to want to be married to more than one person. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm sure it's like a truth that they're trying to hide constantly on those shows. Like it's some kind of weird sex thing. We're gonna we're hiding the red room from you, but really they're hiding the fact that the guy's like, well, she makes the coffee and she <laughs> cleans and she can tell what size wrench I'm asking for when I'm working on the car. <laughs> yeah, and that dude was not somebody. If it's the same guy I'm thinking of with the long hair and all that, like I just like you. You're lucky you have one wife, dude. Don't don't push it. <laughs> all right. 
so despite her desire for children, she faced difficulties conceiving. We're, we're back to current now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Notably, she held no religious inclinations and lacked interest in spiritualism. She even considered spiritualistic seances as taboo, a perspective ingrained in her upbringing. So kind of like us or people who really, you know, have just heard more than two or three stories about this, like seances, Ouija boards, generally not a great idea. Mm-hmm. You look at the phenomena, the phenomena looks back. Yes, this is a one-off. You're probably not going to find somebody to, you know, make you a ton of money by writing uh, screenplays or anything. So yeah. far more likely to encounter a wow. demon than you are to encounter someone who's like, hey, I want to help you get rich. Yeah, Let's hey, I've been thinking of these stories for 100 or 200 <laughs> years, and I just got to get them out there. <laughs> got to get them out, yeah. All right, however, she did spend a brief period playing the piano for her uncle's spiritualist church in Chicago. Although finding the congregation repulsive, her words, or her word, yeah. she witnessed her uncle's spontaneous poetry performances during this time. Moreover, Kern harbored no aspirations for writing. That realm belonged to Hutchings. Emily Grant Hutchings, a freelance writer with an established career, had already published poetry and fiction in prestigious publications like The Atlantic and Cosmopolitan. Publishing The Atlantic used to be a really big deal. I feel like it's still a big deal today, but like it was huge back then. Yeah. She was a regular contributor to Reedy's Mirror, and her coverage of the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair for newspapers showcased her ability to file a story a day for 24 weeks. Hutchings had even, it's a lot. Hutchings had even authored a novel, Criscios Divine Healer, published in Chicago's Sunday Associated Magazine. In 1912, with Curran's father, George Pollard, succumbing to nephritis. Which I'm not actually sure what that is. Do we know what that is? It is a long since extinct thing. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, apparently, it was also known as Bright Disease, and it's an inflammation of the kidneys and may involve glomeruli, tubules, or intestinal tissue surrounding the glomeruli and tubules. So there you have it. <laughs> okay, that sounds like an it, old-timey disease that people probably would not die of today. Correct. Whenever I see names like that, I kind of glance, like I just go over them thinking like that's probably an old fashioned way of saying something that's still around. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, so with George Pollard dying, the women turned to the Ouija board for comfort. Curran's mother, armed with pen and paper, stood ready to document any messages from the spirit realm mm. to sound like Yu Yu Hakusho, the spirit realm. <laughs> There are conflicting reports on whether they made contact with spirits before the appearance of Patience Worth. Hutchings, according to our research, a less-than-reliable source, claimed they communicated with Curran's grandfather and Pollard after his demise in September. Regardless, by June 22nd of 1913, the board was persistently spelling out the letters P-A-T. In their subsequent session, Patience Worth established contact. After introducing herself... The ghost expressed, Wait, I would speak with thee. If thou shalt live, then so shall I. I make my bread by thy hearth. Good friends, let us be merry. The time for work is past. Let the tabby drowse and blink her wisdom to the fire log. End quote. Thus, this enigmatic, enigmatic, there we go, we got one in. Spirit had revealed herself, but who was she? We will find out more about that after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Initially, Patience Worth was reticent about her past, evading questions with statements like, quote, About me, ye would know much. Yesterday is dead. Let thy mind rest as to the past. End quote. Eventually, details unfolded. She claimed to be an unmarried woman from England who arrived in America by boat in the 1600s. 
Her life ended tragically in an Indian raid, though she couldn't identify the tribe responsible, stating, quote, Would ye with a blade at thy throat seek the affiliation of thine assassin? And basically she's saying it doesn't really matter to her who it was. It was just people that had come to kill them. Or do you think you'd even notice under the circumstances? Yeah, that's true too. In 1921, Curran experienced a vision of Patience Worth departing for America on a three-masted schooner. She described a petite woman with dark red mahogany hair styled in big, glossy, soft waves. When initially portrayed as an elderly woman, Curran later revised the age, stating that Patience Worth died at 30. These revelations unfolded gradually as Patience Worth displayed a disinterest in historical matters. She also demonstrated a lack of inclination toward fulfilling the conventional expectations associated with ghosts contacted through Ouija boards. A disclaimer in the short-lived Patience Worth's magazine explicitly stated that she, quote, does not read the future, find lost lovers, lost relatives, or lost property. So she doesn't do parlor tricks, basically. She does not give advice upon business. She does not pretend to be a physical healer. End quote. Patience Worth's primary interest lay in writing. Almost immediately, Patience commenced composing aphorisms and parables through the Ouija board. Quote, Thy paltry prayers are but a comforter to heal the wounds of thine own conscience. Mistake not their true worth, but live, and work, and work, and work. This alone can earn thee rest. Sounds like she knows a lot about how our lives are going to end. Retirement? <laughs> no. You must work and work and work. Yeah. Within a month, she ventured into poetry. Patient God, highly lauded by critics, serves as an example. And it goes like this. Ah, God, I have drunk unto the dregs and flung the cup at thee. The dust of crumbling righteousness hath dried and soaked unto itself. In the drop I spilled to Bacchus, while thou, all patient, sendest purple vintage for a later harvest. And I know what that means, but why don't you tell us, Ryan? <laughs> exactly. No, why don't, why don't you enlighten us? I, I think that sometimes poetry gets a little bit too convoluted and, and people try and make it like, oh, it could mean this, or it could mean this, or it could mean this. It's so deep. You have no idea. And... This might be one of those instances, but in any case, whole novels began pouring forth from the Ouija board. Initially, a 90-minute session might yield 500 words, but over time, the output escalated to 2,000 to 3,000 words and occasionally even reached five to 6,000. That's a lot for 90 minutes. You want to do some math on that while I go on? Sure. Patients could compose 16 poems in 20 minutes or seamlessly switch between projects, simultaneously working on a novel, play, and poem, alternating languages for each. And when they say alternating languages, they're not talking about, she says some in Spanish and some in French. They're just kind of saying that the presentation is different based on it being a novel, play, or a poem. Witnesses marveled at the incredible speed with which the pointer traversed the board. In 1918, a witness noted that Quran called out words, quote, with never a second's hesitation over choice of word or phrase and never an alteration, end quote. In addition to all this, there was the Patience Worth Record, a transcription of the Ouija board conversation spanning 29 volumes, mostly recorded by John Quran. Much attention was drawn to the language used by patients. It was archaic, yet not from any specific time or place, certainly not 17th century England or colonial America. It resembled the language found in historical romance novels of the 20th century intertwined with the King James Bible. It's quite a description, right? Yeah. Like, man, this doesn't sound like colonial America. It sounds like King James remixed with some romance novels <laughs> so on the math front mm -hmm. if you did 5500 words in 90 minutes what did i come up with that's about 61 words per minute and in english the average word is about five characters so that's about five characters per second on some of these more 
I don't know, prolific sessions, whatever you'd want to call them, more productive sessions. That's not even getting up to the 6,000 that it quoted. It's, it's interesting, too, because I'm assuming that people went through, probably Pearl and maybe uh, Hutchins, went through and added the like grammar marks right yeah. because there's no quotation well i mean quotation that's not something that would necessarily need to be presented but there's no commas no apostrophes or anything like that on the on the ouija board yeah. so um that's interesting but man can you imagine like okay so this started in what 1913 yeah so imagine like you know, late 1914 and someone, you know, that maybe hadn't seen Pearl or, or some of these other people that were involved in the, uh, Ouija board sessions. And they're like, damn girl, you've been, you've been working out. You got some buff arms, dude. Like <laughs> she's got these like massive muscles in her arms because she's doing the Ouija board, you know, so fast. I mean, that would be physically demanding yeah. to move your even if you're only moving your hands you know five inches if you're doing it five or six times a second for yeah. 90 minutes i mean you would have I mean, to stop and take a break your your cardio would need a break that's it's like a typing speed yeah 61 words a minute i mean it's not super yeah. fast for typing well, that's typing like that's yeah. you put a finger down for a letter not you move the placard yeah Almost the only way to do it would be to have a typewriter hmm. and have the placard just moving on its own and like doing your best to like keep up with where it's going and just hitting the keys yeah, and figuring it out later. But the logistics of that are wild. It is. It is. Um, moving along, patients coined their own words like put or weaving for writing Inman for the soul, hut for house, T-U-N-G for tongue. And so on. So she kind of shorthanded it for him, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. But the writing from the Ouija board could be challenging to comprehend, like, nay, tis not the put o me, the word heron. I mean, it's supposed to be confusing, so. That means contained herein. Okay. So, tis the put o me at c o her. I put a thin. The C O her I and tis the O ye that be a fold. O the put O me and yet a put thou knowest not. So maybe someone that's interpreting this has to be pretty bright, even if yeah. they're not writing it. You know, you need kind of a strong prowess in the English language to try and, you know, untie these knots. But yeah, it's like, uh, the vertical plane <laughs> they had to have people who were like experts in english and like old forms of english to right. interpret what they were saying and that was supposed to be from like the 1400s and 1500s she's from the 1600s so it's fairly similar close enough probably closer to the doddleston in english than to modern english or even english in 1937 Nonetheless, a sharp-witted and distinctive voice emerged, oscillating between humorous, flirtatious, argumentative, and instructive. Critic William Reedy described patience as, quote, arch and coquettish with a mind of no small power and altogether lovable. That's a ringing endorsement. Yeah. I think. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, for sure. The skeptics were quick to highlight that Patience was the name of a character in the popular romance novel To Have and To Hold, published in 1900. Quran claimed she never read it. When a reporter questioned Patience about her reality, her reply was, A phantom? Well enough, prove thyself to me. Which I love, and we saw that in the Doddleston messages too, where it's like, what? You say I'm fake? I'm saying you're fake. Prove you're real. Yeah. So, Twice a week, the Qurans welcome visitors into their home. Initially, Hutchings joined Quran on the board, but eventually others took turns with the planchette because they had to, or they would die of exhaustion. <laughs> like, could you imagine, like, you go into the emergency room, you know, you have, like, 
heart failure and, you know, heat stroke. And they're like, what happened? It was a Ouija board session where we were just channeling an old ghost from the 1600s to write novels. Can you do anything for it? It's so weird. (laughs) You're in a room next to somebody who's got like a TV remote stuck up their butt. Something like that. And they're like, well, that one where we see fairly often this, this planchette thing, not so much. Yeah, I accidentally sat on it. Uh, One notable participant was aptly named Casper Yost, editor of the St. Louis Globe Democrat, a highly respected and deeply religious man who became convinced of patients' worth authenticity. He attended sessions regularly, and patients, skilled in flattery, referred to him as a brother and flirted with him. I don't know if you want to flirt with your brother, but... Yeah, a little odd to put those two together. Probably a context thing back then. Yeah, like a brother. Back then, yeah. Yeah. In February 1915, the Globe Democrat advertised an upcoming series of articles about Patience Worth, heralding her as, quote, perhaps the most marvelous psychical phenomenon the world has ever known. Also, (laughs) clickbait. Uh, The ad running for a week stirred public interest in the subject. The articles, featuring poetry by the ghost and enthusiastic commentary by Yost, referred to the quoted patient God and claimed, quote, There is nothing in literature that grips the mind with greater force, almost breath-stopping in its awfulness, and there is nothing in literature more beautiful than its conclusion, end quote. This series laid the foundation for the book, Patience Worth, A Psychic Mystery, published in 1916 by Henry Holt and Company in New York. It included an introduction by Yost and stories and poems attributed to Patience Worth. While Casper Yost brought public attention to Patience Worth, Reedy brought literary clout. As the publisher of the literary journal Reedy's Mirror, he had published works by Emily Dickinson, Yeats, Theodore Dreiser, Robert Frost, and many other renowned names. That's some pretty strong company to be mentioned, you know, alongside you. So he served as one of the first judges in the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1917. The portly critic, affectionately nicknamed Fatta Wide <laughs> by Patience, was initially skeptical, but soon found himself unable to explain what he witnessed at the Quran's house. Fatta what wide. a name. Fatta Wide. It sounds like a mumble rapper name. I prefer the term diametrically disadvantaged. There you go. Horizontally challenged. Yeah. (laughs) He penned several lengthy articles about his, quote, flirtation with Patience Worth, stating, I do not think this poetry so great as Mr. Casper Yost thinks it, but it is good poetry. Better poetry than we find in our magazines as a rule. Poetry with a quality utterly its own. End quote. Literary fame soon followed. After Yost's book, which received positive reviews, poetry by Patience Worth began to appear in journals across the country. In 1917, a novel titled The Sorry Tale was published, followed by Hope True Blood in 1918, which that's a great name for a person. If I was going to be like a female ghost, that would be a great name. Of these publications, The Sorry Tale proved to be the most successful. This 640-page book was set in the time of Christ and revolved around characters named Panda, Thea, and Hate, or Hat, H-A-T-T-E, with a cameo appearance by Jesus. Must have flown in on a helicopter. Inside joke, guys. You'll get it later. Reedy hailed it as the most remarkable piece of literature I ever read. It is the fifth gospel. Wow. Hutchings found herself squeezed out of the attention and fame, and she was not happy about it. After all, she was also at the Ouija board when Patience Worth appeared. She probably created some of her persona. Hutchings may have been the likelier source for the first version of Patience Worth's old and New England past, alleged age, and physical appearance, that, according to Daniel Shea in the biography, The Patience of Pearl. Hutchings Patience Worth had a backstory straight from a romance novel. She was an older woman from Maine who had lost her betrothed and was kidnapped by Native Americans living among them for many moons. When Patience Worth showed favoritism for Quran, her harp, and vessel, a feud developed between Hutchings and Quran. 
Hutchings began altering the Ouija board transcript to suit her vision. According to the patient's worth record, Mrs. Hutchings would take the record home and rewrite it. Also, she would make interpolations of her own in the record and add to and take away and change ad libitum. And ad libitum just means as she saw fit, basically. After that, Hutchings was no longer allowed to transcribe the sessions. And while it was her idea to write a book about patient's worth, the Qurans gave that task to Yost, cutting Hutchings out. In retaliation, Hutchings wrote letters to James Hyslop, head of the American Society for Psychical Research, or ASPR, founded by William James. Hyslop, a former Columbia University professor, attempted to weed out charlatans from legitimate psychics through his cross-references system. He wanted Quran to submit to his test, but she refused. Hutchings' letters, according to Shea, said Quran was vain, untrustworthy, and profit-minded. I, I don't know how to take that. I mean, I, I would be so busy writing these novels and, and things like that that I might just be like, listen, I don't care if you believe me or not. Yeah. It's good writing. I'm telling you where it's coming from. And if you don't believe that, and you believe I wrote it myself, it's still good writing. And I'm not going to submit to your stupid test. Yeah, it kind of sounds like somebody who's butthurt that she's not going to play along. Exactly. To use a pretty modern term. She also said she'd been communicating with Patience Worth on the Ouija board at home, showing that Quran wasn't the only one who could contact the ghost. Hutchings also claimed to have contacted Quran's dad, who said she was more a daughter to him than she of his flesh ever was. Hmm. So basically saying that it's like a shot saying that uh, Hutchings contacted Karan's dad and he's like, I love you more than I love my own daughter, which yeah. sounds like total bullshit. Yep. This gossip may have colored the harsh review Hyslop wrote for the journal of ASPR in April 1916. It condemned patient's worth as, quote, a fraud and a delusion that will not stand a moment's scientific scrutiny. Probably said it with that attitude, too. Yeah. I like twisting his mustache a little bit. Yeah, there you go. Mm. <laughs> the review caused scandal with many people rushing to Quran's support. One of these was Hutchings, who grandly stated in Reedy's Mirror, quote, we who have worked with patient's worth cannot lie supine while the skeptic annihilates her, end quote. Meanwhile, Hutchings was busy writing a book with a new partner, Mark Twain. Ooh. Twain had died in 1910. Hutchings, like Twain, was born in Hannibal, Missouri and had briefly corresponded with him when he was alive. Perhaps that's why she thought he would choose her to channel his first posthumous work. The living Twain may not have agreed with this decision. He wrote on one of Hutchins' letters, idiot, must preserve. What, what do you think that means? I mean, he's obviously stating that, you know, she's an idiot. But what do you think he means by like must preserve? I, I, I couldn't figure that out. I don't know. It might just be a note to himself not to throw it away. The letter... Like, look at how ridiculous this is. This could be a source for jokes or just amusement in the future. I think you're 100% on with that, Ryan. Good point. Pretty funny. Like, dude, this person is so dumb. I've got to save this to make me <laughs> laugh in a time of, you know, sadness. Yeah. In a St. Louis Dispatch article, Hutchings describes having to add punctuation to her Ouija board after the grammatically minded spirit was confused, writing, quote, Jap Heron awoke. Where's the comma? Early the next morning. End hmm. quote. Yeah, I guess they did have to go and, and add quotation marks and stuff like that. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. She also plugged her next book, describing a French soldier who was waiting to have his story told after Twain was done. Jap Heron, Hutchings' Mark Twain novel, was published in 1916. The New York Times observed that it was the third novel in the last few months by a dead person. They, they then stated, quote, if this is the best that Mark Twain can do by reaching across the barrier, the army of admirers that his works have won for him will all hope that he will hereafter respect that bounty. <laughs> Man, burn. They were, on a, they were on a different level of burns back then, yeah. Yeah, so Twain's daughter, Clara C Clemens, soon filed a case with the Supreme Court. More on that? after a quick break. 
Welcome back, Grip Keepers. Since she had sole rights to her father's stories, Hutchings either had to admit that the book wasn't by Twain, and thus a fraud, or say that it was by Twain and therefore property of his daughter. Jap Heron halted production, and the existing copies were destroyed. From there, Hutchings seemed to have stopped writing with Ouija boards altogether. She went on to write at least two more novels and later became a respected art critic in St. Louis. When she died in 1960, her obituary made no mention of Patience Worth. Patience Worth was going strong, and experts continued to grapple with the enigma. So there's it, there it is again. <laughs> of how someone like Curran could seemingly channel the spirit of Patience Worth. Reedy, though skeptical of the spiritual aspect, found it perplexing that Curran, a woman of simple intelligence with limited education, could produce such good poetry. Prince, a parapsychologist, echoed a similar sentiment in his book, The Case of Patience Worth, suggesting that Curran, lacking substantial education or access to the knowledge displayed by Patience Worth, must be a vessel for some external force operating through her subconscious. You gotta trust Prince. Yeah. I don't know. That feels like putting a lot, a, a weird spin on just like a Ouija board. I used a Ouija board. It came through the Ouija board. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's already a spiritual explanation. Yeah. During interviews, Curran revealed gaps in her education, admitting to not having read a Shakespeare play, lacking knowledge about historical figures like Andrew Jackson, and misunderstanding facts such as Henry VIII's fate. Whether intentionally playing up her ignorance or not, her identity housewife seemed to divert investigators from probing deeply into her connection with Patience Worth. Reedy condescendingly remarked that while Curran knew the words, the ideas conveyed by them utterly escape her. Sounds like our podcast. <laughs> you, do, you don't even understand what you're saying, yeah. Patience Worth in turn often hid behind her gender when accused of inconsistency, proclaiming, I be dame. So I'm, I be female or I am female, suggesting a regression into illogical femininity. No, but that's awesome, though, because, you know, she used misogyny against her, I don't know, tormentors, whatever you want to call yeah. them, just to be like, oh, well, you say I am but a woman. Therefore, you cannot judge me for my lack of education, you know, and then she uses that like, oh, well, I'm also going to take some punches at you through this Ouija board. <laughs> Pretty Do you sweet. remember Garbage, the band? The group? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Illogical Femininity would be a good name for like a cover band for Garbage, Ooh. I feel like. <laughs> there you go. In an era when women were denied the right to vote, Patience Worth's work received more serious consideration from male gatekeepers, who perhaps would have, wouldn't have have taken Curran's conscious writings as seriously which is something I've had in the back of my mind as we've been talking about this. Super sad. Operating under the guise of femininity, Patience Worth could express ideas that respectable women were not allowed to articulate. In 1915, psychiatrist Morton Prince, unrelated to Walter Prince, conducted an interview with Patience Worth using the Ouija board. Also unrelated to the artist formerly known as Prince. Just throwing that out yeah. there. However, he grew frustrated when the elusive spirit refused to answer his questions. So, do you want to read Prince's part and I'll read Patience's? We'll just go through yep. these that way. Yeah. Do you see me? Allure and olden. Do you hear me? Thinkest thou that thou mayest send for a loud O a put and I be a muted O the ear? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> No, darned if I do. Thou art, O a put, O word, that thou knowest man, be not a fitting, O Asira, O the day of me. What would they have said in your day? A dang. All dang. A dang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a brief encounter, Patience Worth managed to confront Morton Prince, calling him old, questioning his hearing ability, reproaching him for using rough language, and even providing a curse word from her past life. So okay. I guess maybe Dang used to carry more weight than, than it does now. Yeah. As a little kid, I was saying Dang, and the nuns and stuff at my school didn't say anything about it. That's right. Despite Curran's 
presence in the room, she appeared oblivious to the insults hurled by the spirit at the esteemed doctor. Well, no wonder he was esteemed. He was getting, never mind, <laughs> leading to an abrupt end to the meeting. Subsequently, Kern began resisting further questioning. By 1919, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, so it must be the same paper, and they just maybe changed its name at some point in there. Yeah. Nobody who's... Or it combined with another newspaper, like there was the St. Louis Post and the St. Louis Dispatch, and they just... Could be. Yeah, nobody nobody listening outside of St. Louis probably cares. Yeah. But whatever. Uh, anyway, by 1919, they reported that she had received numerous offers from psychiatrists and scholars eager to study her, an experience she likened to vivisection. Mm-hmm. She remarks, scientists cannot understand me. That is why they are trying to call me names. Patience Worth, however, didn't just criticize outsiders. She also expressed sentiments that Curran may have harbored. There were instances where patients emerged with Curran's mother, Mary Pollard, in a less than flattering manner, referring to Pollard as an overwise good wife in need of improvement. Patients suggested that she silence the talkative woman. Pollard, being overbearing and controlling, pushed Curran into the performing arts, demanding excellence and resorting to abuse when expectations weren't met. Eileen, Curran's daughter, recounted a brutal incident when Curran forgot her lines during a performance and Pollard physically punished her, creating a chillingly convincing act. Curran described experiencing a breakdown at the age of 13, overwhelmed by the pressures of piano, delivery, Del Sartre school and performances. Despite her mother's insistence, she never returned to school and music lessons continued until her marriage. Pollard also manipulated her daughter's romantic choices, steering her away from her boyfriend, Bob Wyman, whom Pollard deemed lacking financial stability. In a letter following her mother's death, Curran revealed the agonizing love Pollard had for her, driven by a desire to retain control over her. Examining the records, it becomes evident that Patience Worth was gradually liberating Curran in ways that Curran had struggled to achieve on her own. Eventually, Patience would provide her with something more profound, a daughter. In 1916, Patience Worth directed the Currans to adopt a baby, stating, Ye shall seek ye a one, a wee bit, one who hath not. She continued specifying that the baby would be a girl, and that they were to name her Patience Worth. Patience Worth elaborated on how they should speak of the child, referencing a fairy dame. That's... I guess a fairy girl? Yeah, just like a a special girl, I guess. Who ministers and know him who hath sent her. While she didn't provide guidance on finding the child, she did offer instructions on dressing her. Spinster prim with a bonnet, gray cape, a wee-wee kerchief, and a cross around her neck. Funding for the adoption would come from the proceeds of the books. Despite their apparent shock at Patience's directive, the Currens, unable to conceive on their own, followed her instructions. They soon adopted a little girl who seemed to fit all the specified criteria. Weighing only five pounds... The child had red hair like Patience, and they named her Patience Worth Curran, affectionately calling her Patience Wee and later Patty. Five pounds is really small. Mm-hmm. Rose was, I think, seven pounds, and she was taken two or three weeks early. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that baby must have been like fresh from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Like somebody just pushed it out and then booked it. I don't know. I don't know how you things were that. a lot different with adoptions and stuff back then, too. I guess in the narrative, Patience Worth, also referred to as Angel Patience or Thy Mither or Mother, played the role of a caregiver in the child's life. She wrote poems for Patty, affectionately calling her the wee fleshy that be mine, mine, mine. Weird, but it does sound like an old timey, like grandma kind of thing to say. Mm-hmm. I can imagine my mother saying that about my kid. Mm -hmm. In a 1920 article titled The Baby That Is Being Raised by a Ghost, which is pretty dope, uh, in the Washington Times, an update on Patience Wee was provided. The accompanying image portrayed a small child dressed like a Puritan doll. 
The article highlighted patients worth significant involvement in the child's life, noting that she even gave instructions to the doctor, a presumed devotee of the ghost who provided free medical care. Hmm. Thou takest care of the innards of the wee ones, and these here take care of the outwards. Curran mentioned that Patience Wee was receiving gifts from all over the world. By 1920, Curran had every reason to be optimistic about the future. Through Patience Words, she had published three books, gained a substantial following, and was contributing stories under her own name. The Saturday Evening Post paid her $350 for the story Rosa Alvaro Entrante. The narrative featured a girl named Mimey, I'm going to say M-A-Y-M-E, if somebody out there knows what that is, let us know at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Spell it out phonetically for us. Employed in a Chicago department store, a position Curran held before marriage. So she's writing from experience. In the tale, this character is convinced by a medium that her spirit guide is a beautiful Spanish woman named Rosa Alvaro. The story was optioned by the Goldwyn Film Company and adapted into a movie titled What Happened to Rosa. In a triumphant letter to a friend, Curran shared the news that the story was sold for $1,500, all caps with an exclamation point, or a bang, as they probably would have called it back then. Oh, my dears, can you imagine? She added that another movie company, Famous Players, showed significant interest in her stories. Cultural shifts were underway, and Ouija boards and seances were deemed old-fashioned in the emerging era of flappers, jazz, and prohibition. Mm. Even as Curran submitted stories to the Saturday Evening Post, the publication featured a satirical piece by Dorothy Parker mocking Ouija boards. A segment of the satire seemed to allude to Curran, describing how a woman named Mrs. Both channels poems from a spirit who used to live a long time ago up around Cape Codway. The book titled Heartthrobs from the Hereafter... <laughs> Oh, man, reading it is so different from saying it out loud. It's being rushed to publication while the public is still in the right mood. The only hiccup, the ghost is being difficult about royalties. Financial difficulties began to loom for the currents. And we'll find out more about these financial difficulties after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. In a candid 1920 article in the Post-Dispatch, Curran revealed her financial struggles. Writing had generated $1,854, while expenses amounted to almost $6,000. This included entertaining 8,000 people who had observed the sessions, hiring assistants and secretaries, and raising patients' we. Book sales were declining and no more movie deals were on the horizon. They had also incurred a $4,000 loss on Patience Worth's magazine. In 1922, John Curran, age 51, passed away from an unknown illness. Pearl, unexpectedly pregnant, gave birth to their daughter, Eileen, six months later. Now, with two young children, Curran embarked on a nationwide tour showcasing Patience Worth. In this manner, her childhood dream of being on stage was fulfilled. A 1929 article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch described Curran's show, titled An Evening with Patience Worth, with an audience of 150 people. Tall, with blue eyes, gray hair, and dressed in white, Curran narrated stories about Patience Worth and solicited topics from the audience for patients to compose immediately. Having abandoned the Ouija board, Curran could now directly channel patients. When the audience suggested heaven, she recited a poem while dabbing her head with a green handkerchief with a secretary on hand to transcribe every word. When someone proposed a poem on prohibition, Curran humorously remarked, I must tell you, patients joke about prohibition. Someone asked her for a poem on spirits and she said, distilled or deceased? The evening produced 27 poems or 3,000 words, but according to Quran, patience wasn't at her best tonight. In 1926, Curran entered into a marriage with Henry Rogers, the widower of her late music teacher, whom she had known as Uncle Henry when she was younger. Sounds like a creepy uncle. This union was one of convenience, given that Rogers was 25 years her senior and in poor health. By 1930, she relocated with her daughters to California to be with Rogers. 
It was there that she encountered her first love, Bob Wyman, at a party, and they rekindled their thwarted romance. According to Shay, the elderly Dr. Rogers urged his wife to divorce him, giving her the freedom to marry her first love, an offer she had accepted by December 22, 1931, when she and Wyman were married. That is a good man. Listen, I care about you. I love you. I want you to be happy. And if that means that you have to be with someone else, go for it. I understand. Yeah, yeah that is good. Tragic, but. Yeah, but especially in 1931, where women were, I think, viewed more of a possession almost. Yeah. <sighs> Despite Patience Worth, who by then sounded much like Dorothy Parker expressing romantic sentiments, the marriage was short-lived. Towards the end, Curran and her two daughters became dependent on Herman Baer, a wealthy fan and editor of her last books. She was discontented, confiding in a friend that she was depressed after two years of miserable health. She mentioned that if not for Patience Worth, she would have, quote, just waved bye-bye to this old world, end quote, in a letter to a friend expressing that life in general was rather rotten. In November 1937, Curran informed a friend, quote, Patience has just shown me the end of the road, and you will have to carry on as best you can. End quote. A month later, she succumbed to pneumonia. Her children endured the loss of not just one, but two mothers. Patty shared in an interview, We always felt patience was within our call and reach when mother was here. Now she is gone just as certainly as mother is gone. End quote. While Eileen went on to marry, Patty struggled with substance abuse and tumultuous relationships. In 1943, she died of an accidental drug overdose at the age of 27. Though the interpretation of how Curran perceived Patience Worth's influence on her life remains unclear, there is no doubt that the ghost brought her immense pleasure. In a 1919 article titled, A Nut for Psychologists, Curran vividly describes the experience of channeling Patience Worth through her. And I just want to say that the the movie, A Nut for Psychologists, is definitely something that you want to search on incognito mode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This phenomenon bears a resemblance to the concept of creative flow. Psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman describes flow as a state where the creator and the universe merge into one. Distractions fade away, and the mind is fully attuned to the act of creating. In this state, there is minimal self-awareness or critical self-judgment, and there exists intrinsic joy in the creative process. It's possible that the key to understanding how Curran viewed patients' worth lies in the fact that she eventually began writing under her own name. When constrained to express her own experiences and thoughts, Curran found the process tedious, stating, My own writing fatigues me, while the other, patients' worth, exhilarates me. That's a queer mess of a statement, but quite true. In the sto- short story, uh, Roselle Vera and Toronto, like we just were talking about, the character uh, Mimi, I'm still going to say it that way. By the way, I did look up while you were talking, $1,500 back then would be worth about twenty three grand today. So decent, but not huge. It's not retirement money. Yeah. Uh, But this character, mirroring Curran's life, discovers a beautiful spirit that brings excitement, money, and a sense of purpose, transforming her previously dull existence. The character expresses her feelings about Rosa, saying, Oh, Gwen, I love her. She's everything I want to be. Didn't I find her? It ain't me. It's what used to be me before the world buried it. Interesting sentiment. I think everybody feels that way a little bit sometimes. Like you find some celebrity or some character or whatever, and you're like, that's me. If the world, Mm -hmm. if the man hadn't uh, smacked me down or or however you might want to put that. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of thinking of Johnny Bravo right there. But anyway, this sentiment may offer insights into how Curran perceived the transformative influence of patient's worth on her life. But we will get into final thoughts after a quick break. Welcome back, Grip Keepers. So, Jay, what'd you think? Well, 
There's a couple things. Uh, one, this story illustrates how women were treated back then and, and what they were faced with, you know, basically being told that what they say and do doesn't really matter. It kind of goes back to the mad gasser where it's like, oh, these were just hysterical women that could not control their thoughts, like they're incomplete beings or something. And and that's really sad. I absolutely love how Pearl took shots at people through patient's worth and could get away with it. And that to me is the most amazing part of this story. Um, I have no doubt that this actually occurred because we have evidence. If, if all of a sudden, if I said, you know, hey, I have figured out this incredibly complex math problem that Einstein was working on and couldn't figure out. And Tesla was having trouble with. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I got it. It came through a Ouija board. I mean, that that's the explanation. That's it. Because I couldn't do it on my own. And if I had another uh, accomplice, if you will, they're going to want credit for it. They're not going to be like, hey, you know, I solved the most impossible math equation ever, but I want you to get credit, bud. And yeah. that's what happened here. She wrote things that she should have been incapable of writing, not because she was a woman, but because she was 13 when she dropped out of school. And that was probably, you know, pretty good for the a woman in the you know early 1900s you know getting to 13 in school is pretty pretty good but it's going to be evident if you try and you know write something that is going to be revered by audiences and critics alike worldwide so yeah. i think this happened i believe her and the only other explanation that I can think of is if she had some sort of split personality and that other personality was, you know, this genius or, or whatever. So I'm going, I believe it. I believe that patience was, I don't know that I believe that she was a real person at one point, but I believe that these articles, poems, novels, etc., were all obtained through the Ouija board. That being said, this is a one-off. If you have listened to this podcast, you know that most of the stories that involve Ouija boards do not end positively like this one. Yeah, so stay very away. Very few entities out there are looking to help you out. Right. At least the ones who are going to contact you through the Ouija board. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if she had said, I went into a meditative state and this came to me, it would be a little bit different. But this was outwardly written by a Ouija board. Yeah. And there were tons of witnesses. And even I the person that hated her was like, no, no, this is real. This this yeah. really happened. Because I totally believe that spirits are out there. Mm -hmm. There was this uh, story that I heard a long time ago, probably 20 years ago, maybe more. Mm -hmm. It was on TV like before ghost stuff was popular. So probably more mm -hmm. than 20 years ago because it was around then that Ghost Hunters really came out and all that. Mm -hmm. But they were talking about this story where these kids were playing with a Ouija board and they were talking to this entity. And it was this whole thing about how they had kind of started something by doing that. Mm -hmm. But they asked it, you know, are there other, are there other ghosts around or is it just you? And the response that it came back with was phantoms fill the skies around you, mm. which I love. That is so cool. Like there's no other way of putting it. Like that's a pretty cool way of saying that. Um, but yeah, like I've, I've gone through some pretty rough stuff this last year. You know about that. Our listeners don't, yeah. but 
yeah you know most of that well it's really pretty much all behind me at this point like we've made it through but there was a point where i was kind of sitting in the living room and i was like is this all going to be okay like, is everything going to go all right the way i think it is like grandma grandpa if you're out there like i was thinking of my on the kennedy side of the family like if you're out there let me know like what do you think like make a cardinal mm-hmm. here like give me give me a sign make a cardinal up here sure i haven't seen one in a while and on the bush like right outside the window i was looking at a cardinal landed wow and i was like okay and i said out loud i was like okay that is a weird coincidence and then another one landed and i was like all right fine all right cool it's gonna be all right i got it thank you very much (laughs) message received yeah it's like all right i don't want to piss off grandma (laughs) well what i mean i'm glad you asked for a cardinal you know what i mean like if this is if this is going to be okay, send a giant fire-breathing dragon. Yeah. <laughs> then we wouldn't be having this podcast. Send a hobo living in a VW microbus who's going to park in front of my house for a while. Right. Send something statistically unlikely and irritating. There you go. I only bring that up because one of my neighbors is upset. Apparently a house nearby, and we can leave this in the show. I'll probably leave it in the video version. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of these houses that we can see from back here that faces the main road, uh, there is somebody doing like a van life thing at one of them. Oh. My neighbor's apparently a bird watcher and has seen the woman in the van naked several times to the point that it's like bothering him. Oh my gosh. What's the may- address? <laughs> I know. It's like you mentioned it and it's like, dude, just stop looking. If you know the van is there, just don't look at it. It's like, I know there's right. good bird watching out here. Like there's hawks and stuff. It's like, just don't look at the van. He's like, I'm trying to figure out something to block it or something. Like, are you supposed to be living in a van in, a, in somebody's driveway? It's like, I don't know. Are you supposed to be using binoculars to look in somebody's living space? Yeah, my brother came over and I mentioned it to him. And he's like, where's his van at? And he was like, we got in his car and he was driving up and down the road trying to figure out which one it was. <laughs> Well, it may, did you, maybe you, you know, subconsciously ask for that too. If everything's going to be okay, let a naked woman in a van appear on the street behind me. I haven't seen her though. It does look like maybe a You have man. a shit eating grin on your face. You may have seen her. No, I haven't <laughs> seen her. I, do, I never see anything good. Well, you saw uh, Starlink. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. But I don't see the fun stuff my neighbors see that bothers them. Oh, well. All right. Well, what's your, what's your thoughts on <laughs> patient's word? So I was thinking the same thing that you mentioned, like a split personality kind of deal or a dissociative personality disorder is probably what they would mm-hmm. think of it today. That For it's sure. a spirit that's coming through that is expressing ideas that Kern probably had, but was too maybe limited by social expectations of her time to be able to really like express it. So it seems like it's entirely possible that, you know, maybe the Ouija board was some way to cover that or, or it was like a real manifestation. Mm-hmm. It's like uh what was that movie? Beautiful mind. Mm-hmm. Or he's getting like messages through this mailbox or whatever, but it's all him. And he only realizes at the end that it's all him. Like it could be one of those things. Like she does have like another some kind of personality disorder, and it's communicating through this Ouija board, which would explain why she gets so fast and so proficient with communicating with it because it's all coming from the same place. Mm-hmm. It could also be like a clickbaity kind of thing, you know, whatever you would call that back in the day. But mm-hmm. I mean, it was during a time where seances and spiritualism was popular. But at the same time, it was also during a time where debunking this kind of thing was popular and a lot of people looked into it and a lot of people said, no, she's in that doesn't seem particularly interested in this. She doesn't seem like she sort of shares the same uh, vocabulary that this spirit does. She doesn't right. talk the way the books are written or anything like that. So, and it, like you said, she's not taking credit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing to say she's using the spirit thing to like boost her popularity till she can write under her own name, which she did. Mm-hmm. But then it's another thing to try to think about somebody who wants to do that and wants to be famous and whatever. And to think that they would write work that's good enough 
to be recognized like it was and try to give that credit away to somebody else. Be like, no, right. it's not even me. I didn't even do it. Yep. Like I find my own work tedious. Like this, this is the real deal. This is the spirit. Agreed. So I, I think I lean towards something actually coming through. I think in the future there might be more uh, thought put towards like a personality disorder. Mm-hmm. But given everything else, it it seems like it was a genuine experience. Whether it was like a Donaldson messages kind of thing or whatever, I you know, I don't know if it's a spirit near them or exactly how the arrangement worked for the spirit, like. Was she just always around? It kind of sounds like she was. I mean, they talk about the research talked about the kids feeling like they, they had two mothers. Right. Right. Cause they had the spirit and they had Pearl. So I think it's real. I think it's legit. There might have been some influence from current to the spirit that the spirit picked up on. And was like, I'm going to say what yeah. I know you're thinking. Yeah. Sometimes people can express your thoughts better than you can. I mean, that's why quotes, you know, resonate with people because it's like, that's what I was thinking. I just didn't know how to say it like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique. Let us know what you think about this episode at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Like, subscribe, share. Socials are in the notes. You can check out our cool stuff at crypticpodcaststore.com. And it would be extremely helpful if anyone would like to buy us a coffee. You can do that at buymeacoffee.com forward slash crypticpi. And remember, in the vastness of knowledge is the seed of wisdom. Water it with understanding and it will grow into a tree of patience. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. Nicely done. Boom.